If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Acts, and in a moment I'll pick up reading in verse 26. But as you turn to Acts 8 and verse 26, I want to ask you to consider this question. Have you ever asked somebody why they go to church? Why do people go to church? I suppose if we passed the microphone this morning and had people tell why they came today, there'd be as many different reasons as there are people. But if you talk to folks long enough, generally at some point people begin to say, well, I go to church because God told me to, because the Bible says to, because I'm a Christian, because I was scheduled to bring donuts or whatever reason it is. But at some point people say the reason that they do it is because they believe that the words that we sing here and the words that are said here and whatever happens during this time on Sunday morning, that somehow God uses that to change us, to make us people more like he designed us to be. Isn't that why you come? That there's something that's going to happen here that makes me better as a person, better as a spouse, Better as a father, better as a pastor, maybe better in your job. That God uses this time, that he uses these things that we do to change us, to become more and more the people that he designed us to be. And so as we come to this account of Philip and the Ethiopian this morning, I want us to think about that, to talk about that. What does that look like? If I want my life to change for the better, how does that happen? What does that look like? I want to talk about that question for a moment. And then secondly, I want to talk about the question, if I want to be used of God to see other people's lives change for the better, how does that happen? What does that look like? I'd like to talk about those two questions. And before I read the text, let me just say, I would love for us to be focused on both of those things. Because I was thinking about it, and you know, there are some people who say, well, I just want to get better. I don't care what everybody else does, right? And that's good. We should want to improve no matter what everyone else is doing. I think that's a good thing. But it's a little bit self-centered and focused if I just want to see me get better, but I don't care if anybody else gets better, right? So that's a good reason to listen to both of the points. But the other thing is this. Some people come and they're like, yep, I hope so-and-so's here to hear this sermon because they need it. Because they need to get better, right? It's not just about everybody else getting better either, right? Some folks are saying, yeah, I can tell you what his problem is. Let me list it out for you. Here's what he... Other people's problems are always so clear to us, aren't they? The changes they need to make. And so let's come to the scripture this morning with open hearts, thinking about both of those questions. First, yes, you know, how can I be changed? How can I be different? If I want to see my life change, how does that happen? What does that look like for me? And then also, secondly, if I want to be used of God to see other people's lives changed, what would that look like? And we'll do that as we come to this account of Philip and the Ethiopian. Hear now God's word from Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. 
So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The unit was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, Thank you for preserving this account in your word. I pray that you would use it today to show us how our lives can be changed. You would help us to see what that looks like so that we could live that way. And Father, I pray that you would also show us what it would look like for us to be used by you to see other people have life change take place. And Father, I pray that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's look at those two questions together. First, if I want to see my life change for the better, how does that happen? And I think we get a beginning of that answer as we look here at the text together. And the first thing I would say is I look at the text, and if we want to see life change, the first thing, the first way that happens is this. Number one, seek God. Seek God. The Ethiopian eunuch was seeking God. You see that there at the end of verse 27, right? We're told this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Presumably he had gone to the temple there and he was seeking God in his temple. And then as you keep reading, on his way home, he is reading the prophet Isaiah. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And so he's seeking God um, in worship. He's seeking God in his word. And for us to see real life change, for us to be made different, we need to seek God. We've already talked about that this morning. In fact, you've already said it in our call to worship this morning. Remember in Isaiah 55, verse 6, we read together, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. God wants us to seek him. He calls for us to seek him. I think of the New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 11, that great uh, chapter on on faith. And we're told there in Hebrews 11 and verse 6 that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
There is a, a reward from God in seeking God and looking for him and moving toward him. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear preachers preach this kind of thing. Seek God, and it sounds good, right? Yeah, seek God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be better, so I'm going to seek God this week. That's what I'm doing. Then you get to Monday morning or, or Tuesday or even Sunday afternoon. It's like, okay, I wanted to be better. How does that happen? Well, I seek God. Well, what does that mean? I'm not really sure, right? I mean, it sounded good when he said it, but uh, I'm kind of at a loss for what that looks like. So, so let's talk about that for a minute. How do we seek God? What does it look like to seek God? And the first thing I would say about that is this. We seek God in the gathering of his people. You see that in verse 27, right? That the Ethiopian eunuch is going to the temple in Jerusalem where God's people would be gathered to worship him. They're gathering for prayer. They're gathering for the sacrifices that would be made there. Now, God is everywhere. There is no place that we can go where God is not. But God is present in a different way when his people are all gathered together. I think of Psalm 22 and verse 3 that talks about, if you have the old King James, that God inhabits the praises of his people. Or more modern translations say that he's enthroned on the praises of his people. When we gather and praise him, that he is there, that he's enthroned there, that he lives there, that he dwells there in his being. I think of passages like Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, that both talk about that, that we're these stones and that we are temples of the living God and that God lives in us by his spirit. But it's interesting if you le- read both of those places, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, they both say that these stones are joined together, that as a people we're joined together, that we are built together, and as we come together that God is present there by his spirit. The imagery, of course, is the temple. And you know, when, when, when God comes and fills the temple, he is present in the temple in a way that is far more glorious, in a way that is palpable, in a way that is distinguishable from how God is present in other places. And so what that means is when the people of God gather, when we come together in the Spirit of God in me, and the Spirit of God in you, and the Spirit of God, when, when we come together, there is a, a difference in the presence of God when we gather together. I feel like my family felt that this summer. We traveled to some really special places and felt really close to God in the Holy Land and some of the places that we went. But we missed the gathering of God's people. There's something that happens when we gather and we sing his praises. And and I experience his presence in a way when I'm gathered with you singing the words of songs and hearing the word of words. I experience God's presence in a way that is different when we're together than when we are in our boat in the wilderness or in our deer stand alone. Is God in those places? Absolutely he is. There's no place we can go away from God. Oh, but he's present in the gathering of his people in a way that is different than the other times we experience God's presence. So one thing you can do is to seek God in the gathering of his people. Alone, I can think God is a certain way, and I like to think of God like this, but when I come together in community... And I hear other people talking about their experience of God. My thinking can be corrected. God uses my experiences of him to correct other people's thinking. 
And so there's something that happens when the people of God gather together. And so I would encourage you to seek God in the gathering of his people. The other thing we see very clearly here, right, is that we would seek God not just in the gathering of his people, but we would seek God in his word. You see that in verse 28. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scripture. He's reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. He has that scroll and he's reading through it. Now, did the Ethiopian eunuch understand everything he was reading? No, he didn't understand everything. In fact, he voiced some uh, saying that he didn't understand some of it. But he understood some things. And it's that way when we read God's word as well, isn't it? We don't understand everything. There are some things that are clear. There are some things that we understand that we glean from reading God's word. And so seeking God in his word is a way that we have our lives changed. Because when we look for God in his word, when we seek him there, God reveals himself to us. We see in his word what his character is like. We see what God likes and what God hates. We see what God does in response to his people. We see how God responds to his people, how he loves his people, how he extends mercy and grace upon grace upon grace to broken and messed up people like us. We see how God is willing to use broken and messed up people to accomplish his purposes. And so when we seek God in his word, we learn more about God. But we also learn more about ourselves. As we look at the people of God, those who have gone on before us, we see ourselves in these things, don't we? I think of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, where the writer of Hebrews talks about God's word and how it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And how it will slice us, right? That it cuts as bone separating marrow, Right? What does it do? It divides our soul and spirit and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And as we begin to read God's word, he often uses our seeking him and his word to convict us of sin. That we see things that are wrong. And he uses that to enable us to turn from those things. And so we have that life change of living life more as he designed us to live as we seek God in his word and learn more about him and learn more about ourselves. We also seek God in his word. We learn more about the peace that God gives. The love and the joy that he gives. Those gifts that are available for his children that walk with him. And it grows our faith and enables us to seek him more and to walk with him more faithfully. So if you want to see a change in your life for the better... I would say seek God. And we see here a couple of ways to do that is seeking God in the gathering of his people and seeking God in his word. There's a second thing, may not be as clear to you, but I think when we think about the story, you'll agree with me. That if we want to see life, if I want to see my life change for the better, one way that happens is we have to be persistent. We have to be persistent. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch was persistent. Think about that. He drove 2,000 miles to the temple in Jerusalem. We've got a little map up here. There it is. And so uh, Ethiopia at that time was really all this space south of Egypt. Here's a, we're looking at, if you're listening online, we're looking at a map of Africa that has a little bit of the Mediterranean and some of the Middle East. And we're looking at Ethiopia. Here's the present-day Ethiopia, really that area sometimes called Nubia. Everything south of Egypt was really Ethiopia. 
So this guy's probably from the coast right over in here. And he's grown up there his whole life in Africa. How does he even know that there's a temple up here in Jerusalem? Well, we don't know. We know the queen of Sheba, who is probably from right here close by, and his kingdom was included in hers uh, centuries before this, that she came to Jerusalem to see Solomon's temple and was really impressed with him. Maybe he heard through the generations something like that. But, but he grows up here. He must be a commoner because he is a eunuch, right? And the... Uh, what happened in the time was that it, you just didn't let commoners come work amongst the royalty. We didn't want common blood mixed with royal blood. And so if you were going to be around the royal family, then you became a eunuch. That means as a man you were castrated, right? So he's made a lot of sacrifices to get where he is today. And he's done really well. He's the head of the whole treasury, he must be a very trusted official. He must have high character because he has achieved so much where he is from. But think about that. He's achieved all these things, yet he wants to leave his job probably for weeks, if not months, to make this, make this, this journey either along the coast or maybe along the Nile because you want to be close to water through what is in large part a desert to get up here to Jerusalem. So this guy is really persistently seeking God as he comes up this way. And, you know, I don't know what happened when he got to the temple in Jerusalem, but we can kind of speculate a few things. First of all, if he's an Ethiopian with dark skin, he's obviously going to be a Gentile and not Jewish, and so he can only go in as far as the court of the Gentiles. He can't even go in as far as some of the Jewish believers in the temple, Right? And even if he says, okay, well, then I'll convert to Judaism. I came all this way. I want to be Jewish. I'm interested in this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even if he offers to convert, you know what they would say? You can't convert because Jewish men have to be circumcised. You've been castrated. In fact, you can't even come in the temple at all, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1 would say. So this guy just came 2,000 miles through a desert all the way up here to Jerusalem for a trip that took weeks or months and is told you can't come inside. You're not welcome. <laughs> wow. So he gets in his chariot. He's going back to Ethiopia reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but that amazes me, right? He's still being persistent. He's not given up on seeking God. <laughs> Even though he's been turned away from the temple in Jerusalem, he continues to seek God in his word. And we're told, Hebrews 11, verse 6, we just talked about a minute ago, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And wow, does he reward this man by having Philip appear to him in the desert and explain to him what's going on so that he can hear the good news and be baptized and be saved. I want you to think about that for a minute. Maybe you have sought God before. Maybe you've been here to church before. You've pursued Christianity before, but it didn't really work for you. You experienced some bumps in the road. Maybe you went to a place like the temple where you were not made to feel welcome and you were turned away or turned out. Listen, as we seek God, we all face bumps in the road, right? We all face things that make it hard to continue to seek him. But I think we learn from the Ethiopian unit, man, be persistent. Keep pursuing God. Don't give up on that. Continue to seek God. 
and be persistent in that pursuit. So I, I see that we should see God. I see we should be persistent. I see the Ethiopian eunuch doing something else here that's really interesting to me. And I would say number three, if you want to see your life change for the better, see God, be persistent, ask lots of questions. Do you notice here in the text, everything Luke records the Ethiopian eunuch saying, saying is a question. Did you notice that? Look back at the text, verse 31, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited to Philip to come up and sit with him. He asked the question, tell me, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? When they get away, he says, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Down in verse 36, what would prevent me from being baptized? Your translation may say, probably because he's been to the temple and something prevented him from going inside. So now he's saying, what would prevent me from being baptized? Praise God, nothing, right? But this man asks a lot of questions. (laughs) And listen, he has a lot of humility to not just ask questions, but to listen to the answer. Maybe we should add that. Ask lots of questions and have the humility to listen to answers. Think about that. This guy's successful. He's gotten to the top of his field. He's made sacrifices to get there. He is rich. He's the head of all the treasury. He's riding this chariot that he commands them to stop, which means there are servants that are taking his commands. He must be high character if he's in charge of the money. If they let him be gone for weeks or months at a time on this this trip that he wants to go on, seeking the God of Israel when he lives in Ethiopia, he is reading The scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which means that he's more educated than most of the people at the time who can't read. He's reading it in Greek, most likely, which is a language different than the one he speaks. So he speaks multiple languages. He's rich. He's successful. And this refugee guy comes up and starts running beside the chariot saying, do you understand what you're reading? (laughs) Now, most really successful, high-powered, high-character you know, hard-driven people would say, no, I hadn't understand it yet, but I'll figure it out, you know. Don't need help from a hitchhiker as I'm riding my chariot, and you don't even have one, right? Don't need help from somebody who can't even afford a chariot. Here's Philip, right? He's a refugee. He's been run out of Jerusalem. He's been in Samaria, and now he's walking down here in the desert because God sent him. And the Ethiopian eunuch is willing to ask him questions. The humility that he has. And listen to his answers. Wow, if you want to see your life change for the better, ask lots of questions and have the humility to listen to answers. Ask the tough questions. I went to Shoals Christian this week on Thursday morning to talk to the 5th and 6th grade class because one of the kids in the class, his dad died this past week. And so I went there as a minister to talk, and they started asking all these questions. And adults are really nice. Like, they won't ask you the hard questions because they don't want to make you feel bad in front of them. But kids just don't care, right? Right? They're like, you know, what happens when we die? What do you mean eternal destruction? Is my cat going to be in heaven? What happens to babies when they die? I mean, they were pulling out all the questions. And that's a good thing, right? It's good to ask questions, And I hope that if you continue coming to Redeemer, you will find this to be a place where you can get honest answers to honest questions. Because some of those questions I had to say the other day, I don't know the answer to that. 
Because I want to say what the Scripture says without going any further than that. But it's important that if we're going to see our lives change for the better, that we have to learn to ask questions. Ask the tough questions. Like, why am I here? Is there a purpose to our existence? Is there such a thing as evil or sin? Is that just a, a social construct or something the church has created to control people? If there is such a thing as evil or sin, where did it come from? I mean, why are things broken and messed up the way that they are? Maybe the better question is, why is there beauty in the world? Where did that come from? Is there such a thing as good? Maybe that question needs to be asked. And how do we know the difference between good and evil? Is there any hope of fixing what is broken? Is there any hope for the beauty to overcome the brokenness? Let's ask those kinds of questions. If you're here and you're asking those kinds of questions, I want to give you my answer. Philip gave his answer for the, the hope that is within him. I would imagine I would say something very similar. You see, I believe God created all things and that he created them good. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that five or six times he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he says, it's very good. So God created all things good. There was no crying or death or pain or decay or divorce or shame or fear or blame in the world that God created. He created things good. And he put Adam and Eve in charge of that creation. We do have a purpose. We do have a place. We do have a role that we play. We're, we're people made in God's image. And he put us here to rule over his creation in his place. To live life, as the pledge says, under God. Right? And ruling over the creation in his place. But... The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, people in general, we don't want to rule under God. We want to rule the way we want to rule. And so we place ourselves in a position above God or try to act like God doesn't exist at all. And as a result of that, that rebellion, that refusal to see God as our king, as the rightful king and creator of all things, shame and fear and blame and hatred and divorce, and decay, and death have entered the world because of that. But there is great hope. Because God remains committed to his creation. He remains committed to his people. He remains committed to making all things new. And Isaiah the prophet, maybe this is where Philip started. Isaiah the prophet, as, as at the time he's writing, Israel's in captivity. And they're longing for one to come. He's almost writing here in Isaiah 53 that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. He's almost writing a job description, right? What is it we need? We need one who will come and be not above God, but be a servant of the Lord. And we need to have him to come and to... And observe God's ways and to walk in his ways perfectly for us because we can't do it. And then we need the servant of the Lord who's willing to not put himself in the place of God, but put himself in our place. That he'd be willing to take our sin on himself. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Right? He was wounded for our iniquity. That his suffering was because of us, that our punishment would be placed on him. Isaiah is saying, that's what we need. 
And then Philip is able to say, can I tell you, God has sent the man for the job. God himself put on flesh and came in the person of Jesus. And in his earthly ministry, he began to roll back the effects of the fall. As he conquered demons, as he conquered disease, as he conquered death. And a day is coming that he's going to come back and he's going to make all things new. Do you want to be part of his kingdom? And evidently the Ethiopian eunuch said, yes, that's the king that I want. Can I be baptized into the people of God? And nothing prevented him from doing so. And nothing prevents you. Nothing will change your life. Like making Jesus your king and living life as, with him as your substitute. John Stott was the first one that I wrote. I don't know who first said it. He's the first one I heard say it. That sin entered the world when man put himself in the place of God. And salvation came into the world when God put himself in the place of man and took our punishment for us so that we could be made right with him. Those are a few thoughts on if you want to see your life changed. What about if we want to see God change other people? What would that look like? Well, I think we see some things in the text about that. If we want to see the people around us change, the first thing I think we'd have to say is we need to follow the promptings that God gives us. Follow the promptings God gives us. Now, here's where people usually say something like this. Well, if an angel of the Lord appeared to me and told me to go run beside a limousine on Florence Boulevard, I'd do it. But no angels appeared to me and told me that, right? I hear you. I get it. But, but first one, the text doesn't say the angel appeared to him, right? Just as the angel said, right? Usually when angels appear, the first thing they say is what? Be not afraid because they must be scary looking, right? And we don't see that here. The angel just says, and I don't know if it's an, uh, an out loud voice or something within his spirit. And then we're told that the spirit said, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but here's what I do know. The same Holy Spirit is in you if you're a believer, as was in Philip. And we know that the Spirit leads people. I think of Matthew 4 or Mark 1 and verse 12 or or Luke 4, where Jesus is driven out. He's led by the Spirit out of the desert to be tempted. We know the Spirit leads people. In Acts 10, when we get to uh, Peter going to Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit tells Peter, hey, it's okay to go with these guys. And he says that it's the Spirit who told him that a couple of times. I think of Acts 13, we'll see that the Spirit says to the church at Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas for his uses. Paul makes a statement in Acts 16 that the Spirit kept him from preaching in Asia and wouldn't let him enter into a certain place. Romans 8, talking to all believers, says we're supposed, to be, we're supposed to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, that Will read this morning, says the exact same thing, that we walk by the Spirit, that we're led by the Spirit. We have these burdens that he gives us. They're nudges, right? Maybe you've experienced it before. Maybe you're praying and God brings somebody to your mind. Maybe you're just driving down the road at a red light and somebody comes to your mind. I wonder how so-and-so's doing. Is that me just thinking of it? Maybe. Is it God laying it on my heart? Maybe. I just have started following up. You know, they've been sick. I need to check on them. She's a widow. She lives alone. Maybe I need to check on her. He's had a hard time at work. I need to check on him. I just have a rule now. If somebody's name comes up three times in a single day, I just call them. 
I called somebody the other day and said, hey, what's going on? I've heard your name three times today, and I just so I, that my rule is I just call you if that happens. And she kind of laughed and told me what was going on in her life. But God puts burdens on us. Maybe you have a burden. Maybe you long to see a child come to salvation, one of your own children. Maybe you have a burden you long to see your, your brother or your sister or a boss or a coworker. God's just put some people in your heart and you have a, a burden to see them come to know him. But here, no, I want you to go out to this place that is a desert place. Why would the Lord do that? Well, Jesus had said the good news would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And ancient Greek geography and history associated Ethiopia with the ends of the earth. That's as far away as anybody lived from the Mediterranean. Homer in his Odyssey referred to the Ethiopians as the most distant of people. And so... Several of the early church fathers, including Irenaeus, who was from Ethiopia, credit the Ethiopian eunuch with evangelizing his homeland. So when God sent Philip in the middle of the desert, even though these other things were going on, he did it so that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. God was doing this to accomplish his purposes. we got to start asking that question. God, why do you have me in the place that I'm in? Right? feels like a desert place. What are you doing? I feel like I could be more fruitful. Why do you have me in this place? Lord, why have you put me in this job? Why have you put me in this marriage? Why have you put me in this family? Why have you put me in this town? We need to ask these questions because you never know where God may send us in order to accomplish his purposes. And here's something else crazy. You never know who God's going to choose to send you to. We'll talk about this more next week when we see Saul come to faith. But for now, let's just say that we tend to be drawn to people who are like us. And these two men are nothing alike. You have a dark-skinned, Ethiopian, sexually altered eunuch, right? Who's been turned out of the temple. And then you have Philip, a Greek-speaking Jew who is not rich, right? He's lost everything. And God brings these two men together. One thing we've seen over and over again as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, next week to Saul, a Jewish man, a Pharisee, and then to Cornelius, a Gentile. It seems clear that as we look here in Acts that God wants the barriers between his people to come down. He wants racial barriers to come down. He wants socioeconomic barriers to come down amongst his people. In fact, think about this. If that's true, if the Holy Spirit is moving in that direction, then that means this. If there are people groups you look down on, then you are resisting the work of God. That's a strong statement, but that, but that is true. Because God wants all different kinds of people to come together in his family and when we divide, now again, listen to the sermon from last week. That doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but it means we agree on the most important things and we love one another as family. I'll go further. I'll say this. If your identity is not in the finished work of Christ on the cross, then there is a people group you will look down on. 
Now, why would I say that? Because if you're not trusting in what Jesus has done and you're trusting in what you do, then what happens is you trust in something you're good at, something that you have that other people don't have, some skill that you have that other people don't have. And then you have confidence in that thing. And what you begin to do is you begin to look down on people who can't do this as well as you can because you take pride in that. But when Jesus comes and we, we have our lives changed by the grace of the gospel that I'm made right with God, not based on anything I do, but based on what Jesus has done, then I can have a confidence to move toward people who are different than me because I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done. So I have a confidence, but not a pride because I didn't accomplish it. Jesus accomplished it on my behalf. And so the only way to avoid this looking down on other people is to come to Jesus and to have your life changed by him. So you never know how or where or who God's going to send you to if you start following these promptings. But let me mention another thing. We follow the promptings God gives us if we want to see people's lives changed. Another thing we need to do is we need to learn to see changed lives as a process. We need to learn to see changed lives as a process. You know, we want to get instant results. We want to see people change now, right? God's been working in the eunuch's heart for a long time that even prompted him to go to Jerusalem. And even in this encounter, which is relatively brief, there's a process. Philip doesn't just go up and begin preaching. He asks a question. He's invited up. He answers questions. Then Philip tells him the good news and God gives him the results. What if God used us to change people's lives? It's probably not going to be immediate. It's going to be a process. And we need to get used to giving the Holy Spirit room to work. People don't have to agree with us right now about everything. Not have the expectation that we ever are going to agree on everything. Because the church has never been a place where everybody agreed on everything. It's a place where we agree on the most important things. But if, you, if we're learning to see changed lives as a process, I wonder, who are you praying for that God would start working in their heart in that way? Who, who are you intentional about moving toward in a process, just getting to know them, just having lunch with them, just having them into your home, just talking about movies and culture, asking some of those questions that we said were important to ask in the first part of the sermon? Are you intentional about seeing somebody's life changed? We need to be intentional about that. One last thought. I mean, I could preach on this text for an hour. I won't. I'm going to stop now. But let me mention one more thing. There's just so much here. But let me mention one other thing that gives us great confidence, gives us great reassurance. And that is that we need, if we want to see lives change, we want to see God use us to change other people's lives, we have to remember God is at work. You know, sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves to make the change happen. But God's the one that drew the Ethiopian eunuch up to Jerusalem. Philip didn't do that. And God's the one that helped him get a copy of the scroll. Philip didn't do that. And then God sends Philip so he's in the right place at the right time. Not that Philip was smart enough, but God prompted that. And God's in the work of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's at work in his heart before Philip even gets there. He's reading Isaiah 53. And God told Philip to approach the chariot and stay close to it. And yes, Philip is obedient and he's faithful. But then God gives him the words to say. And God opened the the, uh, Ethiopian eunuch's heart to even invite the hitchhiker into the chariot with him. And then opened his heart to the gospel so that he would believe and be baptized. Listen to me. 
The same God who we read about here in Acts is at work here and now. He's at work today. I don't want us to believe the lie that God worked in the lives of his people and used his people to change lives a long time ago, but that he doesn't do that anymore. God continues to change lives. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Let's ask God to change us. And let's ask him to use us to change other people. I'll ask him right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only you can change hearts. Only you can change people. We pray that you would start with us. Change our hearts. Change us. Make us more into the people that you would have us to be. And then, Father, I pray that you would use us to see other people's lives change, that you would use even broken and messed up people like us, that you would use scared people, people who don't know who all the, all the answers, people who are hesitant. I pray that you would use us to change the lives of others for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.